Let's open the Scriptures this afternoon to Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and then also the book of Revelation chapter 2, 1 Peter 1 in the Pew Bible, page 1293, 1293. And we'll read the verses 13 through 25. Both readings are in connection with our text in the letter of James, where James is writing about trial and temptation and about the Word. And here Peter writes about the Word of God. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. We turn now to the book of Revelation, chapter 2 where the Lord Jesus is writing letters to the various churches in Asia Minor. We're going to read the letter of our Savior to the church in Smyrna. And he speaks here about testing and about enduring in the test, very same theme as our text in James. Verse 8 of chapter 2, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last... Who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I invite you to turn with me to the letter of James, chapter 1, in the Pew Bible, page 1288, 1288. Continuing our series of sermons on this letter, James 1, the focus this afternoon will be on the verses 12 through 18. Where the inspired James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So far, our text. In response, we'll sing once again from Psalm 25. This time the stanzas 5, 9, and 10. Assembly of God's people gathered this afternoon here in Ancaster. As we've been making our way through this first chapter in James, we've been noting that James appears to switch topics very rapidly. We've seen how he starts with the topic of trials, then switches to praying for wisdom, then moves on to speak of the poor and the rich. We've also come to see, upon closer inspection, that these topics are connected. In order to get through the trials and be blessed with steadfastness and undivided, an undivided heart toward God, we need to pray for wisdom. And then in verses 9 through 11, James writes about one common example of a trial, the issue of money, either not having enough, being poor, or having way more than enough, being rich. And each situation comes with its trials, its difficulties, its challenges, even its outright temptation to sin. And now, starting in verse 12, we can see James coming full circle back to the issue of trials, for he writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. We're right back in the thought of verse 2. He's revisiting that earlier topic only as he does so, 
he takes us deeper now, and he teaches us more about how to handle the trials. James is a skilled teacher. He's layering his instruction, and he's taking us along slowly, gently, to learn what it takes to endure the trials without falling into temptation. For that's the, the new element here that James brings forward, how trials sent by God to forge our faith and to make our faith stronger are at the same time often opportunities for temptation. Temptation for our sinful hearts and as such are threats as well. And we need to be on guard against those powerful urges while all the while looking ahead to the great goal of our faith. And so I bring to you this word of the Lord under this theme, endure trial with an eye to the eternal blessing. Endure trial with an eye to the eternal blessing. This means and requires that we need to do two things. We need to be resisting our devious desires, and we need to be relying on our faithful Father. James starts this section of his chapter with a word of blessing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now, if you recall verses 2 through 4, James has already exhorted us to rejoice or consider it joy when trials come our way. And he gave us two reasons in those earlier verses. He said, your trust will grow strong over the long haul. That's what that word steadfast means. You will grow steadfast. And at the same time, you will develop an undivided loyalty to the Lord as you cling to Him in all the troubles of life. That's what that word perfect means, an undivided loyalty. And as we saw, those are already two blessings that come out of the trials. And now James adds a third blessing in verse 12, you will receive the crown of life. The first two blessings come to us already in this life. Right in the midst of all our sorrows, our faith in Christ grows and our love for Christ grows. But the blessing of verse 12 is now a future blessing only, the crown of life. It comes at the end of our journey, the end of all our sufferings, and it's held out here as a reward. You will receive the crown of life. We were talking about this idea of rewards the other day in catechism. The question came up, are there rewards in heaven? And on the other side of the same issue, are there grades of punishment in hell that make things worse for various people in hell? And then a related question, if there are rewards in heaven, does that mean we actually uh, do earn something and that by doing many good works in this life, we can place ourselves in a higher spot in the next life. Well, we can't answer all of those questions now. We'll have to come back to them another day. But the Bible does speak about rewards 
and mentions it in a number of places. Let me just give one example from the mouth of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to, as I quote this to you, think of how similar this is to James and his writing here in chapter 1. Jesus says, Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, says Jesus, and for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just like James, Jesus speaks of trial, of persecution in particular. And just like James, he holds before the disciples the promise of a great reward in heaven. And why does the Lord Jesus do that? Is he trying to show the disciples that this was the way to, to make their entrance into heaven? If you, if you do this, you will get into heaven? Not at all. For the very reason Jesus came to the earth was to give his life, to lay his life down, as Peter tells us in that chapter we read, to ransom us with his precious blood, to bring us to the Father in heaven himself. No, like James, Jesus is simply pronouncing a blessing, and a blessing is always a gift. It's God's free gift to his people. You don't earn a blessing. So what Jesus does and what James is doing, they, they hold out a reward as an additional incentive for us to keep doing the hard thing, keep trusting, keep persevering, keep staying loyal to God throughout the difficulties, the sufferings, the trials. That's what James wants us to do. Look forward to the crown of life. That's the end game. That's where we're going to be. All the saving work of Jesus is taking us to that crown of life. That's what the Lord Jesus does also in the letter to the church at Smyrna, as we read, to a church that he describes as going through all kinds of tribulation, so troubles, a church being tested unto death, and then the Lord Jesus says to the believers in Smyrna, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So this is added incentive, an additional blessing. And what is the crown of life exactly? Well, it's simply a metaphor for eternal life. The crown, you could say, which is life. James and, and the Lord Jesus are saying, as you go through all the anguish and the sorrow and the troubles in this present age, keep your eye on the life that is coming, on the eternal glory with me, with the Lord Jesus. Remember that this life is short. Remember that it's fleeting, like the flowers that James writes about. Peter writes about it too. Flowers that bloom only to fade ever so quickly. But in contrast, says the Lord and James with him, I give you the life that you will live in my company and in my presence forever and ever for my glory. That's the prize waiting for you and all believers. And then James 
gives a further description of who that prize will go to. Maybe you notice that in verse 12. James says, which God has promised to those who love Him. You see that? Those who love God. Do you love God, beloved? We might find it easier to answer the question, do you believe in God? Then I think without hesitation we would all say, well, of course I believe in God. But we're not so used to expressing or talking about our love for God. I love you, Lord. I love you, Jesus Christ. I love you, Father, Son, and Spirit. That is terminology we're not that familiar with, and yet here it is. The crown of life is for those who are filled with a love for God. And that love shows itself in faith and obedience, or as the kids' song has it, in trust, to trust and obey. So the question comes back to you and to me, brothers and sisters, is your heart filled with an emotion that yearns for God's company and at the same time a devotion that honors God's name. Emotion and devotion. Together, that's love in the Scriptures. Well, so far, I think in verse 12, we can see what James is doing. We can track well with his logic when he reintroduces the idea of trials. But Quickly, as we've seen, he moves on to speak of something else, and the something else is temptation, verses 13 to 15. And in the course of those verses, he asks whether or not God plays a role in tempting us. We might ask, well, what is the connection between trials and temptations? And why speak of God in this way? Why even bring up the question of God? Well, in Greek, the word for trial and the word for temptation is identical. Same word. It's only by knowing the context that you can figure out which one is meant. And we have that in English, too. For example, with a word like boast, we saw that a little bit last time. There can be a proud, man-centered boasting that is evil in God's sight, but there can also be a humble, God-centered boasting that is right in God's eyes. It's the same word, but depending on the context, we know whether it's positive or negative. And James is using this word with its different nuances. He's fully aware that a trial that's sent from God with a good purpose can quickly turn into a temptation with an evil purpose. And so he warns us against mixing those things up, and in the course of mixing them up, blaming God for our sins. Blaming God when we feel tempted. And I think we know that the dangers or the challenges of mixing those things up, don't we, from our own experience. Hardships or trials are like a double-edged sword. 
On the one hand, as we turn to the Lord and lean on Him for help day after day, our trust grows, our reliance on our Father deepens, our love for God develops. That's a good result. That's the main reason why God sends these trials. On the other hand, we can have a different reaction at some point along the way, and we can, for example, start questioning things. We can start questioning God's intentions. Or we can just start drifting away from our trust. Or we can outright start blaming the Lord for our problems. When the suffering is hard and goes on, it's not hard to do any of those three things. We might start asking things like, well, if, if God is really good, how could He let such a terrible thing happen? And over time, we come to resent God and become bitter. Or in the case of a trial, the trial of becoming wealthy, we saw that last time, to become wealthy is a form of trial. As the money and the assets pile up, God gets further and further from our view until after a while, we're like the rich man of Luke 12, we don't even think about God anymore. Or maybe when our struggle is with powerful feelings, very powerful feelings and, and desires, and we begin to say, well, God created me with these feelings, with these desires, with these passions. He knows what I am attracted to. So how can God be offended if I just do what comes naturally to me? In each case, with those three reasonings or three responses, the result is bad. We end up sinning. So what James wants to do in verses 13 to 15 is kind of head us off at the pass to stop us before we even start down that road so that the, the instinct we have to blame God for tempting us gets cut off. We, he, wants us, he wants to prevent us from saying what we are prone to say, it's God's fault. That comes out in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Trials come from God, but not temptations. The testing of faith with the goal of refining faith are regular occurrences in life, and they are God's doing. You can think of biblical examples, Abraham being tempted when he was commanded by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the son of promise at least, or Israel being tested in the desert, Deuteronomy 8. Those were hard experiences. Those were even agonizing times for Abraham, for the people of God. But God's purpose was good in each case. If there was temptation to sin in those situations, that didn't come from God. And the reason is simple, as James tells us, the very act of tempting someone to sin is itself a sin. And since God is pure, and since God is holy, and not able to sin, then the truth is God cannot be behind any temptation. 
It's impossible for God to be tempted to tempt us. And so the source of that pull toward rebellion, the source of the attraction toward sin, that has to be found in another place. And that place, says James, is right in your heart and mine. That's where the sin comes from. Verse 14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Do you realize, beloved, that the root of sin is right in your heart and mine? It's right in our desires. Brothers and sisters, this is part of our daily self-examination. We speak about self-examination approaching the Lord's Supper, but you know, we really ought to be doing this daily to examine our hearts, to look inside and realize that every time we sin, the cause of that sin is not to be found in somebody else, it's to be found in me. I'm the cause. One of the damnable things about our corrupt human nature is that we have now this powerful built-in tendency to blame everybody else except ourselves. We want to justify ourselves and find fault with others. We are natural experts at the blame game. We point a figure at him or her or them. We point it back to our upbringing. That's who's to blame for the wrong I've done. Like King Saul, we saw that last time. King Saul blamed the people for pressuring him into breaking that command of God and letting the good animals live, the animals of the Amalekites. Like Moses blamed Israel when he struck the rock out of anger. Like Eve blamed the serpent. And who did Adam blame? Adam had a double whammy. The woman you gave me, O Lord. He blamed his wife, and he pointed the biggest finger at God. We humans love to pass the buck. That's in us. But the Holy Spirit says to us this afternoon in this text, the buck stops with you and with me. So the next time you're in trouble, the next time you have fallen into some sin, watch for that instinct to kick it, to kick in, and stop that instinct in its tracks. The only person you can blame when you fall into sin is the one that's staring back at you in the mirror. James holds our feet to the fire. So with an eye on the eternal blessing, that crown of life, we have to learn to resist the powerful urges and the devious desires of our own heart. This really is a life and death matter. For to allow temptation to take hold and the evil desires of our heart to allow them to sway us is to invite mortal, deadly danger into our lives. Look at verse 15. James writes, Then desire, and he's using a metaphor, the metaphor of giving birth, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. 
There's a logical sequence with a very sobering result. Desire, and he's referring then to the evil desires of our sinful nature, they produce or they beget, you could even say they father sin. And sin, when it is mature, brings forth death. He's talking about eternal death, condemnation. This is the very opposite of what God brings about through trials, isn't it? Verse 12, the crown of life is reserved for those who last through the trials. When we stand fast in times of trial, when we endure in the strength of the Lord, in the trust of Him, we go on to eternal life. But when we cave into temptation, when we indulge in sin, when we let sin dominate our life, we go on to eternal death. James is presenting us with the, the two pathways, same as Psalm 1 and many other passages of Scripture. Stick with God, and He'll give you life forever. But reject God, and you will be rejected forever. There's no in-between. So the question for you and for me, brothers and sisters, is which path are you on? The pathway of loving God, do you love God? Or the pathway of loving sin? For the only path that gets us to eternal life is that of loving God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and relying on our Father's faithful care. For James does not want us to think that we we have to navigate the trials of life on our own and our own strength. Not at all. Exactly because those sinful desires lurk in our hearts all the time, we need to turn to God for help to resist those desires, and all the more when we are in situations of suffering and trial. James has already taught us in verse 5 to ask God who gives generously Ask him for wisdom to deal with the trials, and James says, it will be given him. You will get wisdom if you ask the Lord in faith. You might recall that God is described in verse 5 literally as the giving God. That's a description of his nature. And as we ask God for help, he gives all that we need to last through the trials with our faith intact, and not just intact, but actually blossoming. James now comes back to that idea in verses 16 through 18, the idea of God being the giving God. These verses, 16 through 18, are like the other side of the coin of what was explained in 13 through 15. They work together to give us a full picture of God's character as it relates to these trials. First, James tells us what God does not do. Verses 13 to 15, he does not tempt us in any way. God does not do that. And then beginning in verse 16, he tells us what God does do. God gives every good gift that's needed. James wants to make the point God is not out to get us, to trap us. He's not out to make us, to trip us up with these trials. No, that's what the devil is up to using our own sinful desires against us. Instead, God is only out to do us good. James says every good gift 
Every perfect gift comes from, is, originates from, is sourced in one place alone. That's our Father in heaven. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Comprehensive. Just think about it. Every good gift in your life has been put there by your Father in heaven. Every good gift. Doesn't that make every day Thanksgiving Day? We might carve up a turkey later today or tomorrow and do that once per year and thank God for the bounty of crops and food, and that's well and good and valuable. But let us be fully aware of the multitude of gifts, countless really, that each of us receives from our Father every single day. Think of all the, the physical gifts you have. Shelter, food, clothing, a job, a family, a spouse, friends, a church family, health. Think of the peace and the freedom we have in our land compared to many countries. Think especially of the gift of forgiveness, which we've been celebrating in the Lord's Supper today, the gift of righteousness and holiness, the gift of everlasting life that you and I possess because the Father gave up the life of His only begotten Son. All of these gifts and many more come to us from the hand of our Father on account of the saving work of our Savior Jesus. James is stressing every good gift comes from this God of yours, this Father of yours. And then, then he, he, the point is this, is this good God, the Father of, of all these good gifts, is He going to now leave you hung out to dry in your trials? Is He going to leave you on your own when you are at your weakest? Is He going to give you nothing when you turn to Him in prayer and ask Him for wisdom and for everything else you need to persevere in faith, hope, and love? Is this good God going to just shut off the fountain? Not going to do it, brothers and sisters. Can't be done because He's the giving God. That's James's overarching point in verses 17 and 18. Your God is simply not the kind of God who abandons ship. He's not the kind of God to forget about you or neglect you or make a mistake with you or mishandle you or shortchange you in any way, shape, or form. He is the fountain of all and every good gift in your life. Remember that always. And secondly, he is incredibly powerful and wise, and he never changes. That character never changes. That comes out in the second part of verse 17. These good gifts, they are coming down, says James, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, that's a packed phrase, Father of lights, unusual in the Bible, that takes us back to creation, to Genesis 1, where God, it says, made the lights in the sky, the sun, moon, stars, planets, etc. God is, is the father of these lights in the sense that He is the creator. 
The word father is often used in the Bible in the sense of the one who creates things. But why does James refer back to these, the creation of the planets and these lights here in this context? Well, James wants us to think big of our God. That's part of what he's, he's after here. The God you are asking things of in your trials and in the hardships you face, sometimes the impossible situations that you might be in, the God you're asking things for is the same God who created the sun and the moon and the stars, who calls the stars by name, says Scripture in one of the Psalms. Just think about that, the, the countless billions of stars that are out there, your God not only made them, He knows their name, each of them. And He created these magnificent stars by a simple command. Literally, God spoke a word, and these things sprung into existence and took their place in the night sky and in the day sky. So this same God to whom you pray in your hour of need, who loves you in Jesus Christ, His Son, He has all the power in the world, and because of Christ, all the love in the world to use to help you through your hardship. Just look up at the bright lights in the sky, whether it's the sun or the moon or the stars. Take a deep look and remind yourself, my God is the Father of these lights. There's nothing my God cannot do. And the second thing James teaches in this phrase is that your God, He never changes. Never changes. Those lights in the sky are some of the most permanent things that we know in this universe. So many things change and move, right? Like humans are constantly changing and moving. We're, we're growing older. We're changing in our moods. We're changing in our perspectives. We mature. We have all kinds of changes, physical and mental and spiritual, in our lives. By comparison, the, the sun, moon, and stars are pretty fixed so fixed that we can navigate by them. The sun always rises in the east, so we know where east is. It sets in the west, so we know where the west is. And at nighttime, you can find out where north is by locating the north star in the night sky. That's how sailors navigate all around the globe. And they, their instruments are fancier these days, but it's the same concept. Well, if these heavenly lights seem fixed and unchangeable to us, how much more the Creator, the Father of these heavenly lights. There's no variation in God. There's no shadow due to change in your God, says James. That means, among other things, that your God will never not be there when you call. Your God will never have a different attitude toward you. He is not moody. You don't have to wait till he's in a good state or good frame of mind before you approach him with a request. You can rely on your Father in heaven 
for he is always available. He's always kind. He's always loving and concerned and filled with grace and always, always eager to help his children be what he has created them to be. James is angling toward that and really lands that point in verse 18. He says, of his own will, that's God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He uses that language of bringing forth. It's uh, the same metaphor as when desire brings forth sin and death. He's contrasting that with what God the Father brings forth. It's the opposite of sin and death. This is an example of one of the Father's good and perfect gifts that originates out of His own heart, out of His own grace. James is reminding us that it was God who decided to bring us forth by the word of truth. Well, what's that mean? What's that referring to specifically? Well, it's, the refer it's referring to God's decision in His plan of election to save us sinners and to do that by regenerating our dead hearts through the Word. We were talking about this the other day in pre-confession class. We have lots of good discussions in that class. We were talking about God's electing love, about how our wills are dead in sin and unable to choose for God. And so God in His grace chooses for us. Paul writes about that in Ephesians 1, but James is writing about that here in verse 18. Peter also writes about it in that chapter we read. God brings us forth, that is to say, He begets us as His spiritual children, and He does so by sending to us the word of truth. Peter describes that as the imperishable word which was preached to you. This is the, the preaching of the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel, God plants the seed of regeneration in the hearts of those whom He chooses, hearts of the elect. There's a lot of theology in verse 17 and 18, but let's just stand back and see the forest so we don't get lost among the trees. James is saying to his fellow brothers and sisters, look, the very fact that you are believers, that you are sons and daughters of God, that is all due to God's grace and love in the first place. You know that. He's just reminding them of something they know. And then his implication is this. Would this good and gracious God now leave you hard up in your day of trouble? Is he the kind of God who, who, who plants faith one day and sets up people for a fall and takes glee in their destruction? Not at all. He's the one who gave the perfect gift of his son to save his word so that he could send, to save his, you from sin, so that he could send his word into your hearts by the power of his spirit to transform you. He's transforming you into new creatures, writes James. He calls the new creatures the first fruits. The first fruits of what? The first fruits of 
Christ's new human race. You are now children of your heavenly Father. You've been given a new heart. You've been given a new way of thinking and living, says James. So go and be what you are. This unchanging God of yours and mine, this incredible, all-powerful and all-loving Father of ours is incapable of tempting, of sinning in any way, which means that He is for you and me. And it means He's with you and me for your good and for His glory. When you go through the dark days of distress and trial, remain steadfast by keeping an eye on the crown of life that's coming, relying exclusively on your faithful Heavenly Father. Ask Him. Ask Him to daily keep you from falling into temptation, the temptations you feel in your heart. Ask Him to preserve you in trust and obedience, all the while being thankful for every good gift you have received. That, that's the way to walk the good pathway, the way of life and blessing. Amen.